Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Now, memoirs are dangerous works. They can often take us, and especially the writer, down paths of self-realisation that can be confronting. Catherine de Saint-Fal's memoir, Pum and Alexander, takes us to Paris and provides an insight into her eccentric parents. So, Catherine, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, David. Now, you were last here about uh, On Brunswick Ground. Yes. Yeah. What has... the Well, just to fill in the listener, On Brunswick <coughs> Ground actually used the Jill Maher case as a sort of core, and it did it very delicately and, and looked at the response of I, the... I didn't use it. I, I just, it, it well, it, it it was a touchstone then for the women yes. in the in the book to reflect on their lives. What was the reception? How has the reception been to that book? Well, I've I haven't had any comments about Jin Ma mm. or about you know nobody said oh it was, nobody. So I was oh that was a big sigh of relief because I, it was done with a lot of respect. Yes, it yeah. it was a risk and in all, some ways. And all, yes, but it was organic. It was in yeah. Brunswick at the time, and I, but the focus was on the community yes, and the yes. essence. Um, and the uh, women reflecting on their own lives, which was, you know, very, very delicately done. So, Thank you. Mm. Now, the book today, Pum and Alexander, Your Parents, is a memoir. So we're touching on delicate issues again in some ways. But before we get into the depth of this memoir... I want to skirt around some of the uh, sub. Well, I'm skirt around the substance for a little, to look at some rather unique elements first. You are the narrator, of course. It's your memoir, but you're about eight years old in this memoir. How did you establish that voice? What was the reason for that? Well, I think that when you're lonely or in trouble or in a pickle in life you 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 find a place to be that that is the truest i think when you're genuine with yourself when you're brushing your teeth in the bathroom generally um that's the voice that helps you and i remember i'm one of those people lucky or not you could say i'm haunted by my childhood but um I'm one of those people who remember very, very well their childhood. I remember right up to the b- white bars of my cot, not that I would burden you with those memories. <laughs> but um, I think that's what made me choose that voice because it seemed to, to, it was the voice that haunted me and the voice I heard. But what sort of perspective then does it offer and provide when you look back on events? How is it differing from an adult narrator saying? Well, um, an adult narrator is interrupted and um, has, has a bit like that poster you have in your <laughs> radio. You know, it, it, it's interrupted by all sorts of waves and things of the present. But a child is like in the center of a merry-go-round and he sees every event. He gives every the same value to every event. And he this, doesn't give, there's no, yes. Well, sorry. there's an innocence and a naivety in some ways about well, events that Well, you can say that, that but there's also a kind of um, uh, irony and, 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 um, and, and co- not a uh, kind of, 
you know, a, a kind of distance because they see everything for the first time. You, one sees everything for the first time. So, you know, you see a bullet, you see a, you see a bottle of wine, you see a, a fist, you see a, a, a dancing girl. It's all the same to you. And I remember that freshness, that, that, that spontaneity, that, that, that is a, a purity that's not naive. Yes, that's what I mean. And the reader, in some ways, can then experience that purity, that innocence, as if they're looking at it again for the first time as well. Well, I don't know. It's just the voice I chose. I, I, I'm not, I don't have any designs on the reader, as my partner Paul Croucher would say. <laughs> okay, so there's there's one issue, that, that narrative voice. The structure of this is interesting. It's not necessarily a linear progression no. because it's broken into two halves, Pum and Alexander. Yes. So this sort of provides for an occasional uh, repetition, but also then some interesting insights. They're separate characters and yet they are one. They're your parents, but they are entities in their own right. How did that come about, That those two halves? Well, because they were they were completely themselves. You know, one was a giraffe, the other one was a lion. You know, one had a mane, the other one had, you know, a soft nuzzle or big scared eyes or whatever. But it, it was, they were, before everything, they were themselves. They were not confused. but And yet they were a couple, a very, they were very much in love, but in a way that defined them, not that, um, not that created an osmosis. Um, can't find the word. But <laughs> well, it, it, it didn't. You know, they didn't. They retained. Them. It didn't their conflate I- their identities. It, it, yes. They retained who they were very deeply, which is something very exciting in a way. Because if you're a child, you know, all the horses in the merry-go-round have a different character. They're mm. not the same. Well, I, I had two very eccentric and crazy horses. <laughs> well, well, we will get on to them shortly mm. because this is what the, the memoir is ostensibly about, but we're still skirting around the edges a little to sort of frame some of this background. The use of classics and history in this uh, book is extraordinary. I mean, the lives of Pum and Alexander are compared to and seen through uh, retelling the stories from the classics, also the historical references to people like Napoleon. So very little is made of the classics today. So what does this suggest about your parents and the nature of the lives they lead? Just There's a brief quote, stories and myths, history and culture are more important to my parents than truth. So this influence of the classics and history on their lives... Well, um, <clears throat> reality had not such a big impact on, on them. They were not very interested in reality. So they, they, they built a kind of tale, but, but they, 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 they did, neither of them went to school. So they were taught at home by their parents who were very cultured in the classics. And I think they pounced on those characters of those worlds to explain their own lives to them because they were torn in the century where they were wit- they witnessed two world wars. My father went to America. If I won't go into that now, if you. But he was, you know, he was in the in the maelstrom of that century, and he wrote that maelstrom with the myths he had in him. He, 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 and he explained his own life to himself, his life that was quite um, hectic and, and adventurous um, to himself through the use of myths. Of, uh, myths. 
Greek mythology, Greek Greek mythology history, and, and he loved Napoleon, yeah. who had a, a, bit, a bit of comparable character to him. <laughs> but yes, you compare them as a way of almost explaining who they are yeah. to these classic heroes. Yeah, in particular the Carthaginians. Yes, uh, because um, as, as a, they did things that were a bit disquieting, both of them, uh, and and their life was a mystery to me. I just didn't go. I couldn't understand what was going on. It was very, um, uh, very. It was a yeah. It, it was a rollicking festival most of the time, <laughs> and for a child who, who sees everything for the first time, you know, a bit like a tiny journalist taking notes. I, I thought, well, what? How could I, you know, make? And so I made do with the stories they presented to me, and the Carthaginians were my favorite. Uh, unfortunately, they they. Their civilization was burned to the ground by the Romans, and the the ruins were covered with salt. So it was not much of a hopeful myth. But at the same time, the Carthaginians did a few terrible things themselves. But they were so, I just liked them. I I, I forgave everything. So if somebody, you know, if the Carthaginians did that, then what? Adults did around me wasn't so bad, but th- there's also nobility, loyalty, duty Im- imbued in these stories about yes. the Carthaginians, the yes. Romans, yes. which then link to the lives of Pum and Alexander. Yeah, well, my parents had a spine too. They were they were crazy, but with a spine. <laughs> well, this then leads us into these two rather eccentric characters, your parents, um, Pum. Pum is not from outer space. She is part Russian, with her Russian great-grandmother, and the rest of her is old Europe, with a Spanish father and a French mother. She behaves like a memory long before I try to remember her. Maybe she knows her whole being can fall apart at any minute, and that all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put her together again. Maybe her puzzle needs to be enclosed in order for her to stay whole. I always imagine she is busy keeping the bits of herself in the boxes she collects, a tiny ivory one with its minute lock and key, a heavy pewter one, an ebony one strapped like a chest, a round silver one with a crown, a copper one with a white powdery lining, empty boxes that she pats opens and closes. She seems to be begging, like Pandora, for everything to return to its safe place. She's not, well, almost... Innocent, unreal in, in many ways. Yeah. How would you... Well, you're, you're confronting her. How, how do you come to terms with this portrait of her that you've painted? You mean as, a, as myself? As yourself, yes. I mean... Well, I can't. That's why I wrote that book. <laughs> I, I, yeah, she was a, a mystery, a walking mystery. She was very, very strange person to be with. Um, and she was... Uh, uh, yeah, she was very, very a beautiful person, but very um, um, bewildering. Well, some of the other things she does, she's a kleptomaniac. Yeah, that was a little thing. It was a little mania, but it's <laughs> a <was>. little mania. <laughs> the degrees of mania, but it was part of her character. Yes, and she got a sort of eccentric thrill out of it. Um. Well, for her, she eccentricity comes from center, the word eccentricity. I looked it up because people were always saying my parents were eccentric. But in fact, it came from their center. It was maybe eccentric for other people, but it came from their center. It, it, uh, but laughing then at situations that we mm. would be shocked by, and 
she laughs at it. I mean, you take your first communion, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. and show her the wafer, mm-hmm. but she laughs at this notion of the, the crushing... Wafer, the wafer in my mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The crushing of bones sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. She's laughing. Yeah. So, I mean... This she was Voltairean. She had a very subversive spirit, yeah. <laughs> well, this, yes, this, this comes out. And um, she has avoided the arranged marriage. This is part and parcel. So what was the background there? Well, it was during the war and, and she had... Uh, they wanted to marry her off and... and and the the the, the man they wanted her to marry was a was a raving maniac. I mean, he was a, a dangerous bull. He, he should have been. Some doctor said he should be locked up in a cage, like a which is the the way people talk about people who were unhappily, un, you know, mm. had a problem. I don't know what he had, poor fellow. You know, maybe he was. Um, what could have been uh, not a psychopath, well, but probably he was um, challenged, uh, shall uh, we say? Yes. Yeah. Well, he, he mentally. He, yeah. yeah, and he, he needed help. He didn't need to be married to my mother. Who would have made it worse. But, but there wasn't enough known in some ways no, about those conditions. Which was pre psychology. Yes. Even though Freud existed, mm. then they, they had never. They were pre psychology. Mm. They mm. didn't. Never but the read important the, book of the important thing was to arrange a so, marriage and and have that sort of. Uh, stability and marital yeah, stability. Yeah, because they, my, my grandparents were, yeah, it was a different world. But she went to Spain and helped um, soldiers who were escaping? Yeah, and, yeah, they were both involved, in, my father especially, in the resistance. But well, my mother yeah, we're going to get to that. Yeah. Got involved, especially to es- help people escape, and I think it was a metaphor for her own life. <laughs> well, this is what yeah. comes out. She has yes. escaped from this arranged. Uh, marriage, yes. and so she then uh, leads her own independent life in well, some way. I wouldn't say she was independent. No, she, ah. she was desperately in need of freedom, but never was, never was. And I think that's a case of a lot of women of her generation, mm-hmm. and I would say even women today, mm. even though their prisons are transparent, you see people who are locked in 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 a in a way of you can feel. You know, you, yes. I, you recognize that, you know. Yes. Yeah. This then gets us on to Alexander, and um, he is somewhat older than Yes, he, your he was 15 years older than 15 her. 15 years older. He actually, and this is the second half of the book, so we're, we're sort of going through. Which and, for them was nothing, just a wink of time. A wink of time. <laughs> but then. Um, he introduces you or raises concern, talks to you about uh, his life, etc. But he also gives you, we're talking about women, he talks to you about men. Men are predators, Catherine. You must imagine them like tigers in the jungle or hovering night owls that fall like a stone on a mouse or a rabbit. Fashions and morals change superficially, but men, real men, are hunters and women are their prey. You can write a hundred poems around it, but that's the bottom truth. I am digesting this. Did you fall like a stone on my mother? He smiles. I did. His eyes are holding mine gleefully. She was so unsuspecting, she didn't stand a chance. I study his features as I would a mysterious rock face. My father is a man. I suddenly realise that. I didn't before. He was always a gigantic best friend, a shelter, an abode, a shining laugh. But now... As I stare at his Roman emperor nose, his thin lips, his blue, blue eyes, I realise with a shock that he's not handsome. This awareness, this awakening, 
your father's perspective on the world and then your awakening and transformation and that innocence and growing uh, knowledge that's there as well. What sort of man was your father? Um, <laughs> that's like asking what sort of hurricane is this? <laughs> he was a... Wet and uh, wild, yes. <laughs> yeah, he was, a, he was a, a, a phenomenon of nature. You know, he'd come in a room and he'd, he'd, he'd um, move the furniture without touching it. <laughs> it was bizarre. He was a very, um, yeah, I, I, I think his character was so powerful and all enveloping that I didn't, I see I saw him not so much because he was very, very busy, but he'd take me off on sudden road trips and... Um, I think that's why my perception of reality was... Uh, that's why I suddenly I realized that he's not handsome or things like that. Because um, uh, it's just like a cloud of unknowing. You know, you, 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 you can't... When you're in a, his presence, you're in the presence of his stories, of his, of his imagination, of his tenderness and, and, and his uh, wit and, and humor. And <laughs> but you, you, you had to focus on... You didn't get a quite clear view of reality of the precise things that were happening to you at that instant. Yeah. So his nose or things like that <laughs> were dis later discoveries. But there's also, I mean, he puts on interesting voices. There's Mr. Crocodile who wants yes. to meet you. Sort of this yes. frightening image for a child that mm -hmm. he imparts. Um, but he's also then filled with um, a melancholy perhaps as well for, and regret for things that have happened in the past. Well, I think that grown-ups speak to children. Sometimes they say things that are quite true, but that are in the well of their being, that, that, that don't come out when they're talking, even to, in confidence to, to, to close connections. They dare say to children, it's a bit like talking to a stranger in the metro, you know, you, you, or, in, or on a bus, you know, you, you, some things you spill out to a stranger, and in the same way, a child is like a stranger because he, he doesn't have your set of values, your world, your connect, your. But that ch that child then is uh, developing an awareness. Yes, but I, I had an awareness of things deep. Yeah. And somehow it was as if it was a subliminal language reaching me. You know, I, I heard things. I heard that sadness that I don't think he, he showed in... in Oh, that sounds pretentious. Maybe he did. I, I, who am I to know? But, I, but I had how are feeling. you to read it as a child? Well, I, I felt, you know, this this nostalgia for. Mm. Yeah. But this raises this notion of you, the narrator, as a character in your own story, as an eight-year-old. So you are, on the one hand, standing outside of this writing, but at the same time, you're inside this, uh, as if it's happening to you at the time. How do you juggle those two? identities oh because um well i think when you write you're in all worlds at the same time you feel things all at the same time it's as if you escape linear time and you go in a circular time um um i just read a book actually um called forever young and it's all the the times are all all together it's a story of melbourne Right, and and you 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 it, it, it's wonderful. That's that's the writerly way of of doing it. I, I was very impressed. 
You're on 3CR, published or not, and you're listening to Catherine de Saint-Fal talking about her memoir, a Paris memoir, entitled Pum and Alexander. We better say that Pum got her name because of bumping down the stairs. Pum, 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 pum. Yeah, on her bottom. On her bottom. That's, that's what makes the noise, the bottom. I mean, the usual things uh, happen. The um, How do you explain certain things to children? Sex. Um, do you know, Catherine, says your father, that men have a little finger somewhere? I frown. On their hand? Oh, no, somewhere else entirely. And they absolutely must put it into a lady every day and even twice a day. If they don't, they get very sick. And when it's inside the lady, that finger becomes as big as a bottle of Coca-Cola. And then he stops dramatically. It explodes. It explodes? Does it hurt the lady? Oh, no, she's very happy. This leaves me silent. I am wondering where men put their bottle of Coca-Cola, in their briefcase perhaps, or in their pocket. It's a worry. I feel my father is expecting me to ask him some questions as usual, but I'd rather we spoke about the Carthaginians. <laughs> so this, this, you know, innocence that we, the, the reader, are aware of. I actually hadn't heard that one before. You know, there's the stalk and the cabbage patch and all of those, but a Coca-Cola bottle, that's yeah, something else altogether. But there is, um, well, there's an, another story about your father uh, and his uh, escapade, shall we call it, with General von Scholtitz. Can you tell us about that? Uh, well, um, I, my father was in the resistance during the whole uh, war because he came back from New York and he, he heard the, he was in his bed one morning and he, he told me I, I heard the German boots on the cobblestones and I couldn't bear it. So he jumped out of his bed in his pyjamas, which was his habit, and he pushed an overcoat over himself and rushed uh, to the first resistance cell he could find. And he, he so that was a few days after his arrival, uh, of, I know, after the French lost the war. Or, or, so he was in the resistance, and then he had a friend called um, Half Nordling, who was the Council of Sweden, and... By chance, you know, he was just, uh, and they, they, they knew each other before the war and they stayed friends. And Half Nordling saw my father through the resistance discreetly because he was a neutral country. And at the end of the war, Hitler was foaming at the mouth, sending uh, orders to, to, to von Scholz to burn Paris. And von Scholz's loved was a, considered himself a cultured man, wanted to return there after the war, and knew, had seen Hitler in the state he was, and knew that everything was lost. So he, he, he didn't want, he, but he said that I'm going to be obliged to, to do it if the Americans don't hurry in. The Americans were surrounding Paris, but were scared to move in because they were frightened that exactly that, that Paris would be burned by the Germans. But in fact, the opposite was true. So uh, von Scholtitz, the, the chief of the commandantur in Paris, needed somebody in the resistance to go cross the German lines and tell General Bradley, who was the American general waiting, you know, carefully waiting, to, to come quick. And he said, uh, Nodling, uh, we know, you know, we know, you, you know some. Can you, uh, well, uh, yes, uh, can you get a contact in the resistance? Yes, I have my friend Alexander Safal, Alexander Safal. So he, he said, well, give him, uh, get him over. So they, my father went to the commandant tour <laughs> and he, he until Tit said, okay, I will explain the situation, gave him a, a free pass to get through the German lines 
and he had that in one pocket, and in the other pocket he had the the, the reddition, which in French, la reddition. Sorry, I'm speaking French. The the the, the communique. The no, no, no. Message the, 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 when you when you you give up by the signing that he was giving it Paris. To, to, to the Americans, giving in yeah. uh, sub, submissions. Submission, resignation. No, no, uh, it's a military term. Oh, dear. Yes, we'll, we'll think of it <laughs> after the show. I'm yes. sorry. No, I'm not a worry, but it's a fascinating story. I, I, I lose my words all over the Capitulation. place. Capitulation. Yes, yeah, or something like something that. Something like that. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, um, I think that's why I write, because my words are all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so um, he, he, he left immediately. It was very quick. Uh, and he put, uh, so he had it in his back pocket, and he was sitting on these two papers. And he was very absent-minded. He said, I was always afraid I'd give the wrong <laughs> paper. <laughs> so he arrived in a, a car, and he drove with three other French resistance to the to the little frontier post, and he walked in. He gave the the, the laissez passer franchises just to go across the lines, mm. not saying where he was going. And he sat there for two hours. So they called, they, and he said he never sweated so much in his life. Anyway, he, he he waited and waited, and he came out, and he got in the car, and the German soldier showed him through the mines, mm. and then he said, "Americanish." Ten kilometer. Yeah. yeah, and and therefore met with Bradley. So and met with Bradley your and, uh, your father then is basically uh, part of um, the well the liberation the of liberation Paris. of yes. Paris. And he helped Paris. Not, he's in that book. Is Paris burning? He's yes. quoted in that book. But um, he was just a messenger. But it was. I met, a, but still an yes, important, an integral a, a, part of that they, fabric. We would have found somebody else in the resistance, but, but he was the one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, there were a lot the, of people involved yeah. in, in those sorts of things. There are also stories about De Gaulle, which we won't go into, and, yeah. and things like that that are all part of it, uh, which makes for a fascinating reading. Then. We're only going to touch on this topic because this is a little secret that's in the story that the reader is going to have to uh, explain for themselves. But there's this echo that keeps coming through all the time about the situation. And it's explained to the eight-year-old Catherine about, you know, of course, of the situation. And this has an extraordinary influence on the lives of Pum and Alexander that they have to constantly deal with. So it's like this shadow overhanging their lives. How did that affect the, the environment in the home? Oh, it was pretty spooky. <laughs> um, the, there was a... Yeah, there was a constant, there was whispers and there was, um, they would scuttle away or they'd rush in their bedroom or they were, once my father hid me and I didn't put that in the book, but he hid, he was rather rotund and he hid in the cupboard with me and um, not to meet somebody and uh, that my mother was seeing and they were kind of, they're two, they were distant cousins, my parents, so they were in constant um they they were they lived in a kind of petrified um and the nuns they were terrified of the nuns any anybody official teachers nuns um anybody who catch them out <laughs> so there's there's all of this framework behind the book it's as if the resistance was still in the <laughs> the, well they're fighting another battle on a different a totally different yes. front mm. where that's concerned but the reader can uh, explore that for um his or herself one sort of final question then. You've written this story. Mm 
uh, well, <laughs> memoir rather than a story. How much of your parents do you see in yourself now that you've sort of written the memoir and explored who they are? Well, I think I think that um, what I see in myself is that I'm in Australia and I'm I I came here because it was the place where I feel the most free and where you can be a genuine human being. And I think that's what they, they gave me, that, that you can reach for that freedom if you want to. Not just freedom, you know, in a kind of uh, outside way, but in a, in a way that you can mm. be, be yourself. So in, in <laughs> and some I think you can do that in Australia more than anywhere in the world. You found a form of liberation in uh, Australia, you think? Or? Well, I think I've always tried to live like that, but, but because he, he said to me when I was a kid, you know, you, you, you can do... Anything you like? Yeah, any, any, anything you believe in. and, and, and but Not that I'm doing, uh, do but you, I am pretty much. <laughs> yeah, anything you like, do you think Not you? Not anything I like, but thing, of course you well, have limits. In terms of the word eccentric. Your, your limits start where other ha, people's... Your have limits you, stop where other people's Have start. you found your core? In other words, are you eccentric or do you have any of your parents' eccentricities about you? Oh, well, I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> well, Probably some sort of animal, but everybody is. Writers are all eccentric. But look, Catherine, we're going to have to finish the interview there. Thank you very much for coming You're in welcome. today. The book, Pum and Alexander, a Paris memoir, the author, Catherine de Saint-Fal, and it's a book from Transit Lounge. And if Barry I'm, Scott is the publisher. Barry Scott's the publisher at Transit Lounge, um, and he's made some interesting and discoveries. And so we'll go out on a little... And plug. thank you for your deep reading and... Con 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 Not a worry. Here we complete. go. Complete. <laughs>